Check the back seat. Check the back seat. All right, come here. Check the back seat. Gets in your head, right? Good. Because every year, dozens of children are forgotten in the backseat of a car by a parent or caregiver. All never thought it could happen to them. But with changes in routines, distractions, or a sleeping child, it can happen to anyone. Parked cars get hot fast and can be deadly. So get it in your head. Check the backseat. A message from NHTSA and the Ad Council. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. Hey, it's Zuko and Kayla from The Wake Up Call. Enjoy your podcast, but when you're done, don't forget about us. We have a radio show. We try to bring a smile to your face every morning. We also talk to some of the hottest country stars of today, and we like to share some good news with That's What I Like. Because Lord knows that's hard to find. When you're done podcasting your podcast, listen to us at 92.3 WCOL. Set your preset on your radio right now, and don't forget you can listen to us online on the iHeartRadio app. Prodigy is a production of iHeartRadio. If you were raised by a different family... How different do you think you'd be? Would your personality be the same? Would you have a different religion? Exactly how much does your DNA determine who you are? It's impossible to know, right? Or is it? My name is Lowell Berlanti, and this is Prodigy. One hundred and seventy years ago, Gregor Mendel ran an experiment crossbreeding pea plants for desirable traits and founded what would become the science of modern genetics. Mendel had discovered genes, the unit of inheritance passed down from parent to child. A hundred years after that, before we had the technology and knowledge that we have today, people wanted to know the answer to a basic but complicated question. Is our life and behavior dictated by genetics or environment? Nature versus nurture. It had to be some combination of both, but how could we untangle them in order to measure their effects? We needed to hold one constant so we could measure the other. If we could quantify one, we could deduce that effects unaccounted for were caused by the other. It's difficult and morally unethical to control a human being's genetics or environment. So how was it done? A combination of ways. One was by studying adopted children. They grew up in completely different environments from their birth parents. Similarities to their birth parents were assumed to be inherited, while similarities to their adopted parents were assumed to be environmental. The results of these adoption studies are then combined with twin studies. There's two types of twins, fraternal and identical. When two sperm fertilize two eggs, you get fraternal twins. They share 50% DNA and are equivalent to siblings. When one sperm fertilizes one egg and then splits, you get identical twins with identical DNA. Dr. Robert Plowman is a geneticist and psychologist. He's been studying twins for over 40 years and is one of the most cited psychologists of this century. Twin and adoption studies are the two main ways we used to use for a century to ask, to what extent are the differences between people 
due to inherited DNA differences, nature, or nurture. Dr. Nancy Siegel is an award-winning geneticist and psychologist. I think we're interested in sending twins for two reasons. First is that they're a beautiful natural experiment, very simple, very elegant, that allows us to look at the genetic and environmental influences on behavior simply by comparing identical twin similarities to fraternal twin similarities. I think the other reason why we're so taken with twins is linked to the fact that we all grow up expecting and learning about individual differences in behavior and in form. And so when we encounter two people who look so much alike and act so much alike, it challenges our belief in the way the world works. Since fraternal and identical twin pairs are usually raised by the same parents in the same environment, we could compare how similar the pairs were to estimate if a trait was environmental or genetic. Since fraternal twins share 50% DNA, while identical twins share 100% DNA, if a trait was more often shared by identical twins, it was assumed to be genetic. Identical twins have matching DNA, so they are also a perfect phenomenon to measure the influence of the environment. Identical twins usually share an environment, so similarities could be environmental as well. But if the identical twins have completely different environments, then we could assume that similarities between the twins are genetic, and differences are environmental. This is what's known as identical twins reared apart. The year was 1980, and 19-year-old Bobby Schaffern had just arrived for his first day at Sullivan Community College in upstate New York. As he headed to his dorm room, he realized that students there were really nice to strangers. They greeted him as if he were an old friend. The weird thing was, they kept calling him Eddie. My name is Bobby, he told them, but they just laughed. They thought he was joking, and he thought they were. Bobby found his room and was met by his new roommate, Michael Domitz. Michael was confused and started asking Bobby questions. Were you adopted? What's your birth date? Bobby looked very similar to his last roommate, Eddie. Too similar. And Michael knew that Eddie wasn't returning to college that year. The two boys ran to the nearest payphone and called Eddie. And when Michael put the phone to Bobby's ear, he heard his own voice. Bobby and Eddie were identical twins separated at birth. They were strikingly similar, and in many more ways than simply physical appearance. They were both wrestlers. They spoke the same, had the same birthmark, and even shared the same IQ score. Everyone was shocked, and the news quickly made its way to the local paper. The next day, they got a phone call from a young man named David. Turns out they actually weren't twins. They were triplets. This was the beginning of a media sensation that swept the nation. Triplets separated at birth and raised in different families with different socioeconomic statuses. The story is told in the documentary, Three Identical Strangers. Another famous story is of the Jim twins. They were adopted to different families in 1940. Both families named them James, but called them Jim. They both liked carpentry, but disliked spelling. They both married a woman named Linda, then divorced and married a woman named Betty. They even both gave their son the same name, James Allen. They were both nail biters, got tension headaches, and vacationed at the same beach in Florida. There's other interesting stories of identical twins reared apart, and they're all very similar. In 1979, a study began which analyzed 
137 pairs of twins reared apart to determine the range of genetic effects. Dr. Nancy Siegel was a researcher in this study for nine years and was surprised by some of the behaviors that showed genetic influence, such as religion. We studied psychological measures, physiological, medical. I mean, just about everything that you could think of was in there. I think shoe size was the only thing we forgot about. After measuring nearly every possible metric, they concluded that identical twins raised apart are more similar to each other than fraternal twins raised together. Here's Dr. Plowman. And the amazing thing is all psychological traits, including personality, are heritable, including ones you might not expect to be, like femininity, even attitudinal things. The first law of behavioral genetics is everything's heritable. So twin and adoption studies are a way for researchers to study nature and nurture. In 1990, the largest ever collaborative biological project began. It cost $2.7 billion and took 13 years. But in 2003, it was completed successfully. We mapped the human genome and gained access to the source code of our own species. We discovered that each person consists of a 99.9% identical 6 billion letter genetic code. So the DNA difference between you, me, and Brad Pitt is 0.01%. That slight difference in our code is called genetic variance and is part of what makes us unique. Each person has around 5 million of them. The variances exist when an individual has a different nucleotide in a DNA fragment, which is called a single nucleotide polymorphism. We abbreviate them as SNPs or SNPs. Polygenic means multiple genes, and a polygenic score is a number that estimates the effect of multiple genetic variances on an individual's characteristics, like weight, or height, or personality. We used to believe that a single gene controlled these traits. Here's Dr. Plowman. We've learned that it's not one or 10 or 100 DNA differences that make a difference for complex traits. What we're talking about is thousands of tiny DNA differences. And that's a real drag if you're a molecular biologist and you want to study pathways from genes to brain to behavior, because if there's thousands of these DNA differences, they all have very small effects. So it's really difficult to trace any of those pathways. What you can do is put these together in a score. You can aggregate all these tiny DNA differences. That's what we call a polygenic score. And that can be useful for prediction. And that's the main thing I'm interested in, is making predictions about people's personality, cognitive abilities, and psychopathology. So instead of looking for a single gene responsible for something like IQ, we look at the smaller effects of a lot of them. This is what is known as a genome-wide polygenic score. But sequencing a person's genome by itself doesn't give us much applicable information because we need something to compare it to. The larger our data set, the more relevant the information becomes. Observing the genetic variance in many individuals is known as a genome-wide association study. They call it GWAS. By analyzing the variances in a person's DNA and comparing it to many other people's DNA, we can learn what these variances do. One of the, my highest polygenic scores is for body mass index, weight. You know, it uh, predicts about 10% of the differences between people in weight. 
people say, well, if you knew you were at a genetic risk for being obese, you just give up and say, oh, well, I'm a genetic fatty. But it's not like that. You know, by knowing I have this genetic propensity, I know that I'm in a lifelong battle. I've sort of known that all before, but I'm always thinking, oh, it's these six pounds I put on at Christmas. It's not. You know, I put on weight more easily. It's harder for me to get rid of it. And I know all your skinny listeners are saying, just get a grip. If you don't eat so much, you won't get fat. Dr. Robert Plowman has been researching behavioral genetics using twin and adoption studies for over 40 years and has published over 800 papers. His most recent book is titled Blueprint, How DNA Makes Us Who We Are. It discusses the conclusions he's drawn from his many years of research. It took a long time to convince psychologists that genetics is important, about 30 years or so. But in the last 10 years or so, the DNA revolution has come along. And a lot of psychologists still don't know about it because mostly it's happening in the medical area. But it's just as relevant to all psychological traits. I'd say in the next five years, psychologists aren't going to know what hit them because you won't be able to do a study if you don't collect DNA. The book is considered somewhat controversial for its forceful portrayal of genetics as the dominant force in human behavior. For example, here's a quote. Parents matter, but they don't make a difference. Parents obviously matter tremendously in their children's lives. They provide the essential physical and psychological ingredients for children's development. But if genetics provides most of the systematic variants and environmental effects are unsystematic and unstable, this applies that parents don't make much of a difference in their children's outcomes beyond the genes they provide at conception. End quote. So Dr. Plowman's book received a reasonable amount of criticism, particularly for the idea that parents don't make a difference. We'll get into that after a quick break. Welcome back to Prodigy. So Blueprint has received some pretty strong criticism for the way its message could be interpreted. In a later publication of the book, Dr. Plowman included an afterword, which said, The most quoted phrase from Blueprint is, Parents matter, but they don't make a difference. The phrase, don't make a difference, is often misconstrued to mean can't make a difference. Don't make a difference means that differences in parenting as they exist in the populations we study do not make much of a difference in children's psychological outcomes. There was a view in Nature of my book. Nature is one of the big science journals, and it was a historian of science. He didn't speak to the data. He just basically said he didn't like the result. He's saying this is a return to determinism. And in my book, I, I emphasize it's not fatalistic. It doesn't mean you can't do anything about it. Dr. Plowman was talking about Nathaniel Comfort, a professor at Johns Hopkins University. So I got Professor Comfort on the phone to ask him about his position. Particularly, I'm interested in the social implications of thinking about genes too much, about an overemphasis on DNA and genes and the kind of social impacts that it has. So I'm in no way anti-genetics. I consider myself a friendly critic. Professor Comfort is a historian of biomedicine. He looks at messages like this in a historical context. To start by saying Dr. Plowman is a venerable, respected psychologist who's been working on these problems for many years. So I'm not really going to comment on his actual science. I'm more interested in the way that he's presenting his science to the public, which I think is honestly reckless and dangerous. I think it's also important to note here 
that although Dr. Plowman had a large data set of 10,000 sets of twins, all of them were born in the UK over the course of 12 months and had parents who agreed to take part in the research. So all of the subjects are from a similar geographic and socioeconomic background. Study you're talking about uses data from UK Biobank, which is in fact overwhelmingly white middle class Britons. So the results from a study don't necessarily apply to African Americans, for example, or Hispanics, or Asians. Dr. Plowman wrote to me in an email that this study is applicable to the UK only and can't be generalized beyond there. However, he seems not to include this important qualifier when making some pretty broad interpretations of his findings. Here's part of the review that Professor Comfort wrote about Dr. Plowman's book in the Nature article. Quote, Although Plowman frequently uses more civil, progressive language than did his predecessors, the book's message is vintage genetic determinism. Plowman likes to say that various components of nurture matter, but they don't make a difference. But the benefits of good teaching of school lunches and breakfasts, of having textbooks and air conditioning and heating and plumbing have been established irrefutably. And they actually are causal. We know why stable blood sugar improves mental concentration, yet Plowman dismisses such effects as unsystematic and unstable. So there's not much we can do about them. Ultimately, if unintentionally, Blueprint is a roadmap for regressive social policy. Nothing here seems overtly hostile, to school children or anyone else, but Plowman's argument provides live ammunition for those who would abandon proven methods of improving academic achievement among socioeconomically deprived children. His utopia is a forensic world dictated by polygenic algorithms and the whims of those who know how to use them. People would be defined at birth by their DNA, expectations would be set, and opportunities, resources, and experiences would be doled out and withheld before anyone has had a chance to show their mettle. To paraphrase Lewinton in his 1970 critique of Jensen's argument, Plowman has made it pretty clear what kind of world he wants. I oppose him. So that was a bit from the article. At first, I didn't understand Professor Comfort's critique and why Dr. Plowman's work could possibly be interpreted as genetic determinism. If you're not familiar with that term, it's the belief that our genetics are the dominant factor for our behavior. It's the extreme nature side of the debate and the cornerstone of the incredibly problematic theory of eugenics. Professor Comfort makes this point at the end of the article when he references Lewinton's critique of Jensen. Arthur Jensen was a very controversial psychologist at Berkeley who argued that IQ is largely determined by genes. So lower IQ scores from a particular group means inferior genetics. Amongst other issues, this argument hinges on the idea that IQ tests are an accurate and universal measure of intelligence across populations. This kind of determinism tends to amount to a form of social Darwinism, basically. Parents, teachers, you don't matter. You know, when you turn everything into biology or you make all your predictions based on biology or genetics, there's a risk of increasing stratification in society, of creating kind of biological castes. It'll continue the erosion of things like public education and public services that we've been seeing in recent decades. 
this just plays into the hands of people who are really trying to dissolve the social contract. But Dr. Plowman rejects the idea that his book has a message of genetic determinism. He sees environmental effects as important, but, quote, mostly random, unsystematic, and unstable, which means that we cannot do much about them. So I gave Dr. Plowman the opportunity to respond to Professor Comfort in an email. And this is what he wrote. Quote, I find it hard to believe that a scientist is not aware of the twin and adoption data showing that inherited DNA differences are the major systematic source, making us who we are as individuals. Why are identical twins reared apart almost as similar as identical twins reared together? Why do adopted children resemble their birth parents, but not their adoptive parents? For twins reared together, why are identical twins twice as similar as non-identical twins? Here's a quote from Blueprint's Afterward, responding to Dr. Comfort's article. The reviewer did not address the science of the book. He just didn't like what he misinterpreted as its message. I plead not guilty to this charge of genetic determinism. Genetics is the main systematic force in shaping who we are as individuals. But genes are not destiny. In Blueprint, Dr. Plowman says, Genetics is about the extent to which inherited DNA differences account for differences between people. In other words, we can turn the television on or off as we please, but turning it off or leaving it on pleases individuals differently, in part due to genetic factors. Genetics is not a puppeteer pulling our strings. Genetic influences are probabilistic propensities, not predetermined programming. End quote. So I searched Blueprint and found at least nine other occurrences where Plowman repeats that message. However, he also makes bold statements that seem to imply the opposite. For instance, the very first paragraph of the book states, quote, What would you think if you heard about a new fortune-telling device that is touted to predict psychological traits like depression, schizophrenia, and school achievement? What's more, it can tell your fortune from the moment of your birth. It is completely reliable and unbiased, and it costs only 100 pounds. This might sound like yet another pop psychology claim about gimmicks that will change your life, but this one is in fact based on the best science of our times. The fortune teller is DNA. It's absolutely true that genes matter, just like environment matters. The way in which genes and environment interact differs from person to person. And we have no idea how that works. Dr. Plowman also wrote, quote, Polygenic scores, based on DNA rather than crystal balls, are fortune tellers. As we shall see, prediction is crucial because it is the key to the prevention of psychological problems and the promotion of promise. End quote. I also gave Professor Comfort the opportunity to respond via email. He said, quote, the vast majority of unshared environments have what Plowman calls random, unsystematic causes. That doesn't make unshared environments unimportant. It just means they're hard to study statistically. In human social behavior, few, if any, direct lines can be drawn from cause to effect. We are shaped by subtle relationships, interacting variables, and big, unforeseeable events. The meaningful differences are individualized. Complex social behaviors are complex. Professor Plowman once called this a gloomy prospect, 
but it's only gloomy if you're a social psychologist because it implies that your research is never going to explain very much. The prospect is not gloomy at all if you're a historian. Contingency, complexity, and context are our jam. I can explain more about social behavior with a timeline than he can with an algorithm. There is no blueprint, Dr. Plowman. There is no crystal ball. There's no ghost in the human machine, of course. It just has so many parts. And those parts interact with such spectacularly idiosyncratic, adaptive, buffering, non-linear variety that no statistical tool even begins to describe it. The blueprint is not just bad biology, it's socially dangerous. Historically, hackneyed metaphors for genetic determinism have misleadingly lent the authority of science to regressive social policies, from disadvantaging black and poor students, to immigration restriction, to coerced sterilization. Polygenic scores do not solve that problem. That's the end of the email. I want to wrap this debate by saying that I believe Dr. Plowman has purely altruistic intentions. He's a brilliant and deservedly respected researcher. The problem is, it's an extremely difficult subject to navigate, so it deserves a high level of critique. All right, we'll get into polygenic testing, epigenetics, and CRISPR right after this quick break. Here is Dr. Ziba Wunderlich. She studies gene expression at UC Irvine. She'd like to raise awareness about food insecurity on college campuses. You can find more info and donate at basicneeds.uci.edu. Dr. Wunderlich raised some really interesting things we need to consider when studying genetics. The question is, like, in terms of why we might want to figure out this genetics, I think a good question that human geneticists often bring up when they think about their work is, to what end are we doing this work, right? So if we figure it out, what does that imply for public policy or how people perceive their genetics? And so I guess the question is also, like, even if we had some genetic component to whether we would be good at chess or something like that, what would we use it for, right? Because like, I would assume that we could still, you know, we want to live in a place where even if you're not genetically predisposed to be the best at something, that you could still do it, right? And that you would still have choice over, because maybe you're really genetically predisposed to be excellent at something, but you don't like it. And so I think that that's, you know, a question that people who work on human genetics often struggle with or wrestle with before designing their experiments, which is like, if I were to find a genetic component to X, like what would that imply for the human population? Another major concern is the privacy of your genetic information. Because if you do genetic testing, um, there's a high expectation that that information should be yours um, and to choose with whom you share it with, right? So should your employer have access to that information? Like what if it influences their decision because your healthcare is gonna be expensive or something like that? Because even though in an ideal world it's yours and it would be private, the reality is that it may not be all of the time. And then what does that imply for what could happen down the road if someone had access to that information? One of the best examples of this was the use of genetic genealogy to identify a man known as the Golden State Killer. He was responsible for at least 13 murders and 50 rapes and had evaded capture for 45 years. While everyone is glad that the killer was caught, the way that he was is potentially alarming. One of his relatives had uploaded their genetic information to an open source database called GED Match, which enabled investigators to identify a common ancestor. 
So not only does your genetic information become public if you use the database, people who never consented to it become public as well. Another interesting subject to consider is instead of dividing traits into two distinct categories of nature or nurture, maybe the environment influences how our genes are expressed. This is what's known as epigenetics. One way this works is by DNA methylation, which can alter the expression of a DNA segment. A study was done by Michael Meany and colleagues on the interaction between mother rats and their babies. Some mother rats groom their babies more often than others. These well-groomed babies grow up to groom their babies more. The significant discovery was in the results of cross-fostering. So when babies from low-grooming mothers were given to the high-grooming ones, they grew up to groom their babies more. And the opposite was also true. The effect took place in the expression of an estrogen receptor. Okay, let's shift focus to another emerging field of genetics. If you had the power to change anything about yourself, would you do it? And what would happen if everyone did? Because that's the question humanity is about to face. In 1987, scientists first noticed an unusual repetitive DNA sequence when studying bacteria. However, there wasn't sufficient data at the time to predict what the function was. CRISPR stands for Clustered Regularly Interspaced Short Palindromic Repeats. It uses a protein to edit DNA. 60 years ago, computers were the size of an entire room. Now, everyone has one an order of magnitude more capable, and it fits in your pocket. We're still in the relatively early stages of gene editing, but make no mistake, this technology will change the world. We'll be able to do everything from cure diseases to create genetically superior embryos. In vitro fertilization was criticized for creating life in a petri dish, but now it's commonplace, and we even genetically screen embryos for abnormalities. One step further would be to fix them. And while we're doing that, why not give them better eyesight and make them taller? Is there a line we shouldn't cross? And if so, where is it? I spoke with Dr. Daihan Atacho. She's a postdoctoral scientist at Lund University, Department of Experimental Medical Sciences. She uses CRISPR to do research in neuroscience and stem cells. She's actually trying to figure out what makes us human. Human genome and the chimpanzee genome are almost identical. And when you look at the protein coding genes, they're like 99% of them are basically the same. So then the question is, how come, you know, we and the chimpanzees are so different? You know, we're building countries and states and nations, but the chimpanzees are still using rudimentary tools in their daily life. Dr. Atacho believes that the difference is in non-coding RNA. She uses CRISPR to stop their expression and then studies the effects. CRISPR is really cool, but I was actually kind of concerned about some of the potential negative possibilities, specifically terrorists using it to create viruses. Yeah, I mean, potentially they can CRISPR viruses, you can CRISPR anything. It is quite expensive to do these experiments. I can't believe I'm going into this, but like it would have to be government run facilities that would have to be that can sponsor this. It's not just any, you know, group somewhere. So CRISPR is not currently as accessible as I thought. It made life much easier for scientists. 
And it makes the work of scientists like her much quicker and cheaper to the taxpayer. But I was also concerned about it being a slippery slope, eventually leading to designer babies. Modifying embryos is considered a hard line because these changes are passed down to future generations. Changing an embryo is like changing the human race. Ethics aside, it's incredibly risky because errors could result in new diseases. It's illegal in many countries, but no international standard for regulation currently exists. In fact, in 2018, a Chinese scientist performed gene edits on embryos using CRISPR in an attempt to improve HIV resistance. After the Chinese scandal, like a lot of politicians and policymakers, as well as ethical boards of universities, kind of like woke up and were like, okay, we need to regulate this better because. No scientist, no matter how crazy we can be, wants to be associated with doing something that's unethical and bad. So together with policymakers and um, ethics committees, you know, philosophers, et cetera, et cetera, a lot of universities and a lot of countries are working together to make a comprehensive assessment of like, oh, where should we put the limit? What can we do? What can we not do? CRISPR is a very exciting advancement that I feel very optimistic about. However, like the case with nuclear reactions, it also has the potential to do great harm and therefore needs to be carefully regulated by an international body. I want to wrap these first three episodes up with some sage advice on raising children. Instead of praising like the achievement of being good at something, I praise the effort, right? For like, you worked really hard to get to that point where you're good at this thing. Read to them, <laughs> you know, take them outside, let them experience the world and let them make mistakes. Encourage their abilities gently, read your kid well, listen to your kid. Your kid will probably tell you what he or she wants to do. There's only so many 10,000 hours in a childhood, you know? so. Are you going to focus all of that and focus your relationship with your kid on that one thing? Whereas, you know, I don't think that's um, a good strategy as a parent. And the goal isn't to be the best at everything, is it? The goal is to find out things you like to do. I'll finish with this quote from Dr. Plowman's book, Blueprint. Parenting is not a means to an end. It is a relationship, one of the longest lasting relationships in our lives. Just as with our partner and our friends, our relationship with our children should be based on loving them, not changing them. All right, so next week will be Christmas Eve, and we have a very special bonus episode for you on the psychology of gift giving with Professor Jeff Gallick. I have so many questions to answer and a ton of really interesting topics to cover, so please subscribe to the show because I'll be back next week with another episode of Prodigy. Prodigy was created and produced by me, Lowell Berlanti. The polygenic score for Tyler Klang showed traits of an excellent executive producer. Music by Sebastian Phillips. Cover art by Pam Peacock. Dr. Robert Plowman is a respected and celebrated research professor at King's College in London. Definitely pick up a copy of his book, Blueprint, How DNA Makes Us Who We Are. Nathaniel Comfort is a professor at Johns Hopkins University and a talented writer. He's currently working on a biography of James Watson, who co-discovered the double helix. Keep an eye out for it. 
Dr. Nancy Siegel is an outstanding professor and the author of six books on twins. You can find more info at drnancysiegeltwins.org. Dr. Zeba Wunderlich is a very kind professor at UC Irvine, where she studies gene expression. She wants to raise awareness about food insecurity on college campuses. You can find more info and donate at basicneeds.uci.edu. Dr. Daihan Atacho is a brilliant postdoctoral researcher at Lund University, doing very interesting research on what makes us human. Very special thanks to Dr. Brian Collin and Camille Izong. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.